Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. I'm recording on a Sunday, uh, which is um, which I never really do, but my guest is very busy, and she's between here and New York, so it worked out this way. But not used to recording on Sundays. I, I have a food hangover. I don't know what it is. I went to a barbecue yesterday, and a past guest, Alejandro Patino, who uh, is a great guy, great actor, and he had this little barbecue in Hollywood, and you forget how much you eat at barbecues. And you know, it's not like we eat ungodly amounts. And I'm not a big eater. And so we got there, and me and Joe and got there. And first of all, he had a table full of Popeyes. Sounds weird, a barbecue with Popeyes. But he's the, uh, just was recently named for the next three years, he's the spokesman for Popeyes in the Mexican market. He's on the, all the Mexican channels. So we had Popeyes. I had a few pieces of that. Then I had a few hot dogs. And then I had some chicken wings and then the other stuff. And then the, his friend made this paella. And I swear to God, I ate so much. And I still would have ate more, but I didn't want to feel like a glutton. So I'm a little bit of a, I feel a little heavier today, but it's a good thing because it's Sunday and we can all kick back. So anyway, we have a great show and I'm going to tell you something. My guest today, she was recommended by John Ailes, whose show Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll premieres this Thursday, a new season. And every guest John has delivered me has been great. He he got me Willie Garson, which Joanne was all happy because Willie called. And he just got me, uh, Liz Gillis, who's a star, one of the stars of the show, and she was a great guest. And so today, it's not an actor, it's a director who also writes, and my guest is Rosemary Rodriguez. How you doing, Rosemary? Hey, good to hear you. Good, good. to meet you. Yes, it's so weird. It's, you know, you think about it. Now, now you, you spend your time between here and New York, pretty much? Yeah, and then wherever else, whatever other show I'm shooting, it could be anywhere. It could be Canada, it could be, you know, Atlanta, it could be anywhere. Now... When did you start to, when did you, first of all, as a kid, did you ever fathom getting into this career as being a director or a writer? Were you a uh, creative kid or what was your childhood like? I mean, what made you come to this this profession, which you're very successful at? And I know, because I know you believe you're from Boston, right? I, yeah, I'm from, I'm born in Boston. My parents are from Boston and then raised in New Hampshire. They moved up to New Hampshire. And uh, no, I, I really was just like a really fucked up nervous kid who was scared so I really wasn't those confident kids that like you know those filmmakers are like oh I grew up with a camera shooting movies I just wanted to be invisible so that was sort of my start as a director was just observing and not really wanting to talk and be a part of but like observing everything and sort of be a fly on the wall so and then just watching movies in the afternoon you know like Hollywood movies and and old you know Marilyn Monroe I've always been drawn to old Hollywood movies always so I guess you're a big uh, Wilder fan I am. I completely am. I was just. I was just watching. Um, TCM just had a run of his movies on. TCM is like my default channel. Okay. And they just had this. Um, I just record on my phone. Like I record scenes sometimes that I just want to remember. And it's so easy now. So I'm playing the scene from the apartment. No, 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 no. Fortune cookie. I. You know what's funny? I was just going to mention that. I was going to say that's such a great movie that a lot of people don't know of. I know, and it's not like one of his most popular movies. It's not a great movie, but it's so visually beautiful. And there's a scene in it that I recorded that's like a little over two minutes long. There's not one cut in the scene, and it is so compelling and so awesome because of the production design, the dialogue, the actors, the blocking of the scene. It's like so compelling. And I was thinking, wow, two-minute scene, who even gets to do that anymore? Right, yeah, and it is. I mean, I mean, it's just crazy how movies have changed. So, you, uh, so you're as a kid, you're watching these movies, but you, you're still you're 
fascinated with them and probably also because you said you wanted to somewhat disappear. So probably, you probably got drawn into it. So when did you decide though, to start being creative? I mean, what age? Did something happen? Did a defining moment happen? Um, I think the defining moment wasn't until I was almost done with college, actually. And then we had I took this film class, and this was at Brandeis. And it was just like a film theory. It, there was nothing practical. I didn't go to film school. But um, this class, you had to watch a movie. We watched movies twice in a row, once with sound and once without sound. Actually, first without sound and then with sound. And when you sit and watch a movie two times in a row, and with no sound, you're observing all the other elements that go into making a movie. And then the second time, you're watching it with the dialogue and the sound and the music and the effects and all that. And it just, like, opened my... And I was like, oh, my God, I want to do that. Like, once I understood and didn't just, like, observe but really got into learning all of the things, then, yeah, I was hooked. And I knew I wanted to be a director. What was your major? I always ask people because so many... American studies. Okay, because so many people don't follow their majors. I mean, that's the thing about college. And I always crack up because I was a business management major. And I always laugh because, you know, you think about how much, you know, college, I think, is just for us to somewhat grow and for like you to see what you want to, you know, you found what you want to do when you were in college. And I think a lot of times when people just choose majors, we just do it because we need some classes to take. Yeah, but you know, that was just an accident for me. My whole life has been like little acts of providence or little, not my intention. Um, you know, it just, it just, my intention in college was really to have fun. And that's why my, my major was American studies. So I just wanted to like, learn about jazz and, you know, so, you know what society did and just whatever made America, America. And, and just, I mean, listen to how that sounds. That doesn't even sound intellectual. Do you know what I mean? I can't even speak about it in those terms. So it was just, it was just fun and I wanted to have a good time and I wanted to get drunk and, you know, get high and just have fun. And that moment just happened accidentally. So you have that moment, you have a somewhat of an epiphany. So then all of a sudden, now, what do you decide to do? How do you, or do you sit there and say, I'm going to focus on doing this? And, you know, where do you decide to? I'm literally in my last semester of senior year, right? So I'm like, get through that class. And then I move to, then I meet somebody, you know, senior week, right? Again, you're just about having fun. So my roommate had a friend that was from New York City. And she came to hang out with us just to have fun and party, uh, you know, during senior week. So she stayed with us, and I remember driving her to the Amtrak station on Route 128, and she gave me her number, and she's like, here, just call me. If you ever come to New York, you know, give me a call. And I was like, really? Because I'll be there in two weeks if you mean it. And she was like, yeah. So two weeks later, I was sleeping on her couch. I had a resume with, like, nothing on it at all. And I was, like, not going to HBO. It was so hot. And this summer was really brutal in New York City. And I really had only been there once. And I'm literally knocking on, like, doors, you know, going to HBO and trying to get past the receptionist or trying to get a job. And, of course, that was the only thing they were sort of like, well, if you want to answer the phones. And I'm like, I don't even know how to answer phones. There's too many (laughs) buttons on the thing. You know what I mean? I was like, what are you talking about? I just want to work. And... So then I, I, I did that for a few weeks, and I couldn't, you know, there isn't even that much in New York, really. I just didn't even know about Los Angeles at all at that point. And so I ended up going back home to New Hampshire, you know, trying to reassess my life. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I, and I came back 
Well, no, right before I went to New Hampshire, because I was really depressed. I had seen this thing on a supermarket bulletin board about, um, it was about like, you know, like an, uh, um, what was it called? Adult education classes. And it was like how to make a short film. And it, it was part of NYU. And I'm like, all right, let me just learn how to use the camera. Because, again, I come from working class people. We didn't have, like, you know, music playing and books being read and any of that stuff, you know. So I had people who are trying to, like, survive, you know, and, and make a living. And my dad was a bookie and my mom stayed home. And So anyway, so, so I didn't know anything about anything. So I'm like, all right, let me learn how to use a camera. I never owned a camera. And I took this out. Uh, you know, I went, I went home, stayed on a lake, tried to reassess my life, came back in September, back, well, late August, back to New York City. And then, you know, I took this NYU class. And then from there, I ended up working in film and everything, you know, kind of fell into place in an odd way. And so, you know, till I was about 27 and got totally fucked up and stopped working and took a detour with my life and screwed everything up. And then, you know, that was like a second part of my life. And now I'm on like the third part of my life. Right. So so you you were working and then you screwed up and you got fucked up, as you said. And mm-hmm. then now when did you write? I mean, I know you wrote and directed Acts of Worship, which was very well received. And mm-hmm. when did that start? When when did you do that in time in that time frame? Was what was going on in your life? And then how did that really put your career really get your career moving? Which it did. Well, you know, I I like I said, I, I learned at that point I wanted to make movies. And so I had this like burning desire and I was trying to write scripts and, and when I did move to New York and, and was at going to NYU was to like take um you know, take a camera, then I meet the boyfriend in the band in the East Village and then I'm following him or then I'm the person with a camera everywhere I go, right? So then I screw up my life and then I'm like, All right, I get my I get this other chance to like have this other life and I'm like kinda on a now I'm like on a real trip. Like, it's like, life is, like, beautiful, I'm blown away, like, everything I, everything has new meaning, and then I realized, well, I have this other part of my life, now I get to make my movie. So, you know, I write the script for Acts of Worship, I get a lot of rejection, because I really don't have anything to show. I have, you know, short films that are completely gone, again, because I fucked up my life, so I don't have anything to show, and, you know... I, I the script is very dark. It's very character driven. It was about my experiences being homeless, drug addict in New York City, and living like a cockroach. And it's like, all right, you know, I, I had to. Somebody told me if you get a hundred thousand dollars, you can get a film in the can. And and I don't want even at that time, we're, people are already shooting digitally. And I'm like, I want to shoot film. I want film. Why? And so why? Because. I like film. I, you know, I had started working in film. The first thing I started doing, you know, was like shooting film, film in a camera, you know, with a Bolex or an Arias. And then I was cutting movies and I was, you know, assistant, assistant editing, editing my own stuff on a flatbed with film. And, and I liked film and I didn't, I, I wanted to shoot. Look, it's like I grew up with film. I needed to at least make my first movie. This is how I felt with film. I did. I wasn't ready to do it yet. You know what I mean. I really wanted to like have that experience and the richness of making a movie, and that was my dream. So, so I, you know, took me almost eight years to to save money, and I kept a little notebook next to my bed. I kept track of every paycheck I made. I stopped working in independent film. I worked in casting because I've done every job in film you could possibly do. And never really getting getting paid, all non-union stuff. And then, you know, the last draw was I was visiting my parents in Florida. I got hit by a car, 
I got, you know, knee surgery and then my neck and physical therapy and all that stuff. And I was crossing the street and this guy hit me. Yeah. And that was like a check for $48,000. And I had like $60,000 saved, almost $60,000. I was like, boom, that's it. As soon as I was better, I'm like, I got the money, let's go. So made a movie, um, got it in the can, raised a little money for, for editing and for post to finish it. And next thing I know, we're at Sundance. And I'm like, just blown away. That like must, I couldn't believe it. That must have been amazing too because, you know, Back then, I mean, this was what, 2001, I think? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then it was, you know, and I've talked to people who are involved in, you know, indie movies, stuff like that. Back then, Sundance really made a difference. Now I've heard it's gotten, you know, more of the the indie movie scene as a high-paid actor working for scale. But back then, it must have been great for you to get into Sundance because back then it was a pretty, it was, I mean, I'm, now I'm sure it's great too, but it was pretty prestigious to get into the Sundance no no it's always I think it's always been prestigious I think you know somewhere towards the end of the the mid 90s was really the time when it was really happening because the mid 90s there was a lot of independent film um, directors you know there was a Steven Soderbergh the Jim Jarmusch like these people were like flourishing Alison Anders like it was like a big deal in the early 90s to mid 90s and and somewhere in that window in mid 90s so the end, you know, coming up on 2000, all these companies started selling out to the bigger companies. So you had Miramax selling out to Disney. You had um, Shooting Gallery becoming like Focus. Like every single person, every single little company in New York was co-opted into the studio system because they saw that independent movies were doing well. They were making money. So then they were like, okay, we want this. Then once it got into like the early 2000s, already they learned by the end of the 90s, they weren't really suited to make those kind of movies and they really didn't, weren't interested in making a little bit of money. Those studios, studios want to make big movies. You know, like Warner Brothers doesn't care, care about their little like Warner Independent. You know what I mean? Right. So, so that all ended up by the 2000s, once they were all starting to like sort of go away already. And also, you know, people don't remember before 9-11, in the springtime of 9-11, the economy was like already really in bad shape and in, in, in New York City things were closing like crazy. So again, all these companies were closing. So it was, and then 9-11 came and you know, I'm traveling around the world going to festivals and it was actually a really difficult time to have a movie and even to be at Sundance because Sundance was already starting to become a celebrity driven festival. So when you were in Sundance, it, it did very well. It did well. I did well. I ended up with a manager and agent. I had no script. Anybody, anybody out there listening, if you ever go to Sundance, make sure you know what your next project is and have it ready to go. Um, I just was consumed and, and couldn't see beyond the movie that I had in front of me. Um, but yeah, it was really successful. And the people at Sundance, all the people that were there, they're basically still there. They're still there programming. They're good people. They're smart people. They do care about movies. They they love filmmakers. They still do. They're amazing people. Now, what was your feelings? I mean, when it was getting shown at Sundance, I mean, because it's as I always think that if you know if you write and direct a movie, and this you know you saved your money, you produced it. It's mm-hmm. it's your baby. I mean, it's like this mm-hmm. is your what you've waited to do. What yeah. were your feelings going on when they when you sit there and would like it would show up on Sundance, and you, you're knowing that if it if it gets good reception. You're gonna do. You're gonna get something out of it. But if it doesn't get a good reception, you're gonna be. You won't get something out of it. What goes through your head when you're waiting for that moment 
for the to go up on screen when it was it seemed like you know there's a lot at stake it is so frightening it is beyond frightening it's like an outer body experience so so what happened well our first screening was um out of town out of the festival it was um at the sundance institute like you know they have this other uh screening and so that was our first screening and so it was small and we had actors there. We just got a bunch of people to go there. We all took up the back seat, the back row of the theater. And I think we all sat there crying. I had never seen the film on a big screen until I got to Sundance. And so it was the first time I saw it. I saw it with, you know, everybody I was, like, with and made the movie with. And, and we were just sobbing. And then the, the amazing thing is that my niece had come with her best friend. And the reason that was so amazing is because about, you know, how many years, like seven or eight years earlier, um, when I was at my complete bottom, like from an emergency room, like, and had like, I can't, I'm going to die moment, my niece and her best friend came with my sister to pick me up, and that's when my new life began. So to have my niece and her best friend there and to, like, watch this movie was just like holy shit it was like it was just really incredibly moving and then I was again because I'm a behind the scenes kind of person you know what I mean and so then going into the next screenings which were in big theaters with big audiences I was petrified the Q&A's would come and people would ask like where is that where did you come up with that story and and I was just like oh I don't know it's just personal next like I couldn't right. own the story <laughs> Now, in retrospect, I realized I, they just wanted to connect, and had I put my, myself out there and been able to own who I am or have the confidence to do that, I just wasn't ready for that. It would have helped the movie, believe it or not, but I couldn't. I was just too scared and vulnerable. Well, yeah, and it's, again, it's opening up a part of your life that you sit there and, you know, you know how stories, they start putting different stories. I mean, it's something, it's, oh. it's, it's your life. And so it's, it's hard to share that because especially now, you know, back then it still was a blunt, social media was popping, you know, I mean, it wasn't like it is now, but I mean, it is something that it, it would probably be very tough. Right. It was. Now it's okay. Now I'm just like, look, who cares? I'm honest. You down, like, you just have to own who you are. That's the bottom line. If you're an artist, you just own every experience you've had and you just share it because that's what life is about. But, you know, when you're starting out, you don't really know what the hell's going on. And it is a child. It's like having a baby and then putting your baby out in, in an audience and everyone coming by and judging it. You're just, like, horrified. I could imagine. So now now after it, it gets good reception and yeah. you're traveling, you know, you said doing different stuff. Now, where what were your focuses on your career then? I mean, because you directed a movie and your career has been over um, the years has been TV and and the thing is great is you, you, I mean, I look at your resume and you've directed great shows and I always love that because, you know, when, <laughs> when sometimes you see, I mean, a job's a job, but you've seen that people must respect you a lot because you do get very good projects. But now, what happened to you after that when you were traveling around? I know you ended up winning a grant or something like that. No, well, no, I ended up, um, okay, so I traveled to festivals around the world. Um, it culminated in the Independent Spirit Awards, and we were nominated for, like, three awards. And, you know, you have to remember, I'm a filmmaker, so I had visions of, like, being in the multiplex near you, okay? That's my, that's my thing. And so 
it wasn't ending up that way. It wasn't going that way. And yes, it did well in the festivals. Doesn't mean it's a commercial movie. There's no name actors in it at all. And it's a very heavy, heavy movie. And so at that time, that wasn't like the flavor of the month. Um, and so I ended up, after the Spirit Awards, I ended up back at my day job in New York City where I flew, freelance as a production coordinator for corporate meetings and stuff. And I ended up back at my day job fucking angry and bitter and miserable. And like, what the hell do you have to do around here? Like, I like could not believe it. And I was literally, I was really bitter and angry. I'm not even understating it. And then I was furious. And then, and I didn't know anything about the business. I didn't know about LA. I didn't know anything. I was getting crash courses, you know, and, and like, what do I do next? And then somebody that I did meet um, through the festivals, that lived out here told me about this women and minority directing fellowship for television that John Wells had. And John Wells is for people who don't know, um, you know, but he's, he's a very um, prolific producer. Now he's a movie director. Um, at the time he had West Wing, ER and Third Watch on the air. And he was at Warner Brothers and they had a fellowship that they, you know, were seeking. You had to have made a feature film in order to apply. Okay. And there was nothing online about it. You couldn't find it on the web anywhere. And so, you know, I gave him a call. I sent him my movie. I called him like every two weeks for the next six months until I think they got tired of me. And they were like, okay, fine, just go. You know, they just put me on their show, um, Third Watch which was shot in New York City, and I shadowed, they put you under contract, and I shadowed um, six directors of six episodes, and then they hired me to direct an episode, and then they gave me another episode, and that sort of got me started. Trudging along slowly, mind you, because I thought, oh, great, I get two, two episodes first season, next season I'll get four, and then I'll get eight, and didn't go that way at all. It was trudging along, trying to get one and like pulling teeth, trying to get hired on another one and another one. It took took quite a few years to get going. Now, when you were following the, you said six different directors. Were you really observing their work and then seeing something they did that you could feel could you could bring into your style, or was it just more of just really learning what a TV director does? Yeah, it's interesting, right? I mean, I guess I was learning the logistics of, of what television directors do, like the meetings that they have and stuff like that. But what I felt I was learning the most about was the politics of TV and the relationships of TV, <clears throat> and but mostly the politics. And, and they were frightening. They were horrifying. And I was like, you know, sometimes... Because I took my shadow job seriously. I didn't really talk. I stayed as a shadow and I observed, and again, I'm good at that, so I didn't have a problem with that, um, but I learned, I watched different directors interact with the crew, with actors and, and producers, and I saw some of them get fucked, I saw some of them really do well, I saw some of them being very controlling, I saw some of them apologizing too much, I saw all the gamut, because once you're a director, you don't get to hang out with other directors and watch them directing, so... That was a valuable experience to me and like realizing, wait, I'm a girl director. I'm I can't apologize like that. That doesn't that doesn't sound right. And that woman is really smart and she knows exactly what she wants and she's really talented, but yet she's apologizing. I don't want to do that. Like I just learned things, you know, or, or the guy who goes in and he's like, put that lens on and da 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 and I want this and da 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 and then I just watch everyone shrink. 
right. around him. So I saw all that and I observed all that. And, and that was great. And I'd already worked for casting directors. So I knew how much I loved actors and I knew, um, that I still needed to learn how, but sometimes I would ask the directors, Hey, what did you say to that actor? And then they tell me, and that was always helpful. So it was great. Now, when you were in the helm for your first show, and I know I read, I read a little article on you that mm-hmm. said there was a lot of stuff going on in some of these third watch, uh, episodes. Mm-hmm. What was it like from going from direct? And I know you shadowed and you were learning your craft, but what was it like when you were finally on the helm of a TV show, which is very different from the movie you shot, because you said your movie was very dark, and this is Third Watch, is a very action-oriented TV show. Mm-hmm. What were your thoughts going through that? I mean, were you just shitting yourself? Oh, I know I was, like, petrified for sure. But but the thing is, I'm always nervous. I'm not petrified now, but I get nervous. I'm nervous. I'm going to go do Walking Dead, like, you know, start this week. And, of course, I'm nervous. I don't sleep well. Like, I'm just, like you know, eating eating up the show and everything I can absorb about the show the last, like, you know, couple months. And it's just, like, it's still nerve-wracking because you're always going to a different set of people and, and all that. And, you know, and, and also on Third Watch, I think um, I knew everybody, but I wasn't a part of because I was always observing and, and being respectful of not getting in people's way. So I don't know what they really thought of me, but I think having any extra bodies on set it's just really not a good thing, and nobody really likes it. And so I wasn't, like, very, like, hey, I'm going to help you, kid. It wasn't at all like that. You know what I mean? So I already was sort of toughened up from being around that particular group of people, which you had to have thick skin. So, yes, I went into it afraid, but I didn't show anyone. And I've been really good in my career at acting as if. So I just act as if, and that's what I did on that show, and it's and it was great. And they they messed with me a little bit, you know. There were things that happened that were really not appropriate, um, you know. Like I remember one time I'm talking to the actors in their in their chair, and we're on location, and then I hear action, and like the first AD had called action to roll this shot that I didn't even want, and I blew up. I mean, I blew up. Like that is so a violation of a DGA contract. It's just insane. And things like that. They would do things like that to me. But everything that they did just made me tougher and stronger. So it was all good. And at the end of the day, it was it's, it's all made me who I am, you know? Right. But when I'm on set, I have to say that once I'm on set and we're happening, I'm actually not afraid. It's actually, it's so much fun. It's crazy. So I can even remember, even on Third Watch, even having that new experience and it being my first episode to this day, I can recall standing outside. We were putting a car in the East River, and we were fighting daylight because not only, like, that episode, they, they were shooting Saturdays on that episode, which was, like, killer. So my first day was a Saturday, which is just not the first day you want to have because everyone's been working six days, right? right? So they're tired on your first day. That was one obstacle. We had daylight savings times that was, like, just happening. And then they were deciding to go from digital, they were going back to film. So that was a transition that was, like, just another thing to deal with. And so I had all these obstacles and stuff, and I was just, like, bring it on, bring it on, bring it on. But I can remember putting this day, putting the car in the East River, fighting the daylight. It was total insanity. It was a huge stunt. And I remember just standing there at one point because everyone had their charge. Everyone knew what they are going to do. And you have like 100 people. Literally, I'm standing there and I'm walking. I can see them visually as I'm talking to you. Just like 
like as if you're watching a frame and people just blah, 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 back and forth, back and forth. And I was just like, oh my God, this is so much fun. Look at these awesome people making shit happen. I was just like, this is just the coolest thing in the world. So now you said after that, you know, you get two episodes and you have to go off of work. What is it like going out to work, get work for a TV director or directing? Because I know actors, you know, you send in a headshot, you get an audition. There's tons of roles. TV, mm. there's not tons of TV shows. Mm-hmm. And in the format that you directed, what do you, did you sit there and did you have your agent sending you out? I mean, were you, did you have meetings? Did you have like auditions to get roles? I mean, how did you get to your next episode of directing after Third Watch? Well, at that point, I did have agents. Um, I did have an agent trying to help me. But basically, I took a little window of time and I came out here to LA, and I remember spending two. I was sublet an apartment for two months, and I would recommend this to anyone who wants a career in this business. I came out um, a to see if I would like moving out here or living out here. But really, I came out. My goal was specifically to walk into a meeting, have a meeting with somebody, be direct about what I wanted, like know how to speak to them and not waste their time, and then be able to walk out of that room and not beat myself up because I said something stupid or not feel like I should have been kissing their toes just as they spent like 15 minutes or a half hour with me. Do you know what I mean? Right. Just like walk in and out like, like an equal. And for two months, and also when I went into the meeting to try to get somebody, a name of somebody else that I should be meeting with, that they could refer me to or that I could try to get on my own. So, and that went from managers, you know, other agents, like anybody I could, any executive, studio, network, anybody I could meet with, um, producers, anybody. And that was like a really, that was a really key thing, I think, for me to do to try to get out there and meet people. Because if nobody knows who you are, they're not going to hire you. And that's always an obstacle for, 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 for beginning directors. It's very much a challenge. But after the episodes, the other thing to do, which I did, was go and meet with the executives at the studio and the network that are over the show that you directed. So at least I could express to them, thank you, and I could let them know what other shows of theirs I'd be interested in directing. So you get a few uh, gigs here and there, and then you now you end up, uh, you directed uh, three episodes for Rescue Me? Oh, yeah, that was the best. Now that show is, is one of the shows I, I just love. I, I'm one of these people, you know, it's it's yeah it's such a great show and oh. it's just different I mean it's just different and you know I've had Jack McGee on my show who's just oh. so funny and yeah. how did that come about and did you know you would get three episodes or were you just going on as one and then they said we're going to give you another one well no I was um, okay so how that came about was was the pilot of Rescue Me when Dennis was doing press for it before it was going to premiere he did, he did an interview at New York Magazine, and at the time I was on Third Watch, right? And he was like, "Oh, this isn't going to be any. This is going to be real firemen. This isn't going to be like hero worship, like you know, Third Watch." And I was like, "I can't believe this guy. I can't believe he has to dog another New York show just to like build himself up." Blah 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 blah. Like in my mind, I'm like, "What a jerk!" So then I watched the show, ready to hate it, so I can like dog it, and I. I fell in love with Rescue Me, like from the first show, which sometimes pilots are not, you got to stick with a show sometimes, you know what I mean? But 
That pilot, I recommend anyone go back and watch that pilot and watch that series. It is still like my favorite series ever on TV. It is so brilliant. And so I watched the pilot and I set on a journey to anyone that would represent or anyone that would listen to me. I want to direct that show. I want to direct that show. It took me four seasons before I could get a meeting with them with Apostle, Dennis's company. And then they had a show that they were doing called Canterbury's Law starring Juliana Margulies. And so they hired me to do an episode of that show. And so I did that show. That was a great experience. That show led me to Juliana bringing me on The Good Wife, which I got to direct 18 episodes of that. So I did that show. Then the strike came. And then I didn't work for like a year. And it was such a bummer because it was just, I was just really getting in a groove at that point. You were getting some heat. You know, you're getting the momentum going. Yeah, and then that was before I hadn't gotten Rescue Me yet. But the fact that I was on a new show, you know, what you go from like you start out and you're on shows that have been on for many seasons. And then once you get started and once you get to the point where they're hiring you in the first like 12 episodes and you're getting in in the beginning when they're shaping the series, that's kind of like a little stamp of approval. So it's like, oh, good. And then the strike came and then everyone's out of work. So then every A-list director at the end of the strike is available. So then I'm at the bottom of the list again. So I'm like, Shh, it was just a bummer. But Rescue Me had reached out and Apostle had booked me for two episodes and then something happened and, and somebody dropped, something happened and they needed me to come like last minute. And I was in New Hampshire on a trip and I was, we, I was there because we we're gonna spread my dad's ashes and I'm in Target and I get a call from Apostle and they're like, could you come on Monday? And I was like, I'll be there. Send me the scripts. I'll be there. And so I just, I loved being there every second. I was so grateful. I just finished, obviously, because I met John Ailes there, two episodes of Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. And it is such a joy working for, the, for that group of people, for Dennis Leary, who is one of the smartest, hardworking, funniest guys and I say this as a fan, not because, like, I'm grateful that he calls again. You know what I mean? It's just, it was amazing. It was just amazing. And I got to go down to ATX and hang out with those guys and Peter Colin. And they had a Rescue Me reunion. You would have loved it. It was hilarious. Oh, uh, yeah. It's just it's, it's such a great show. Now, what was it like when you, were, when you went on the set of Rescue Me? Being a fan of a show, I think, you know, you know, I mean, I interview people and a lot of them are, I'm, I'm, I've been fans of, you know? And so, mm-hmm. to me, interviewing it's always, like, it's it's easier, so right? Cool. Well, it's just it's cool because you feel like you know them, and yeah. that's so. This is just it's an hour interview I do for you going in for a show you love. Do you ever sit there in the back of your head and go, "Hey, man, I better not boot this one." I mean, I got to be on the top of my game. And does it make you just feel like your work is better when you do a show that you have been a fan of? Well, I guess it does. I don't really think about it just because I've done so many new shows and I haven't had a chance to really be a fan of it. You know what I mean? Because it hasn't even been on yet. So, but I mean, I feel that way about going on Walking Dead. I mean, I love, I'm obsessed with that show. I'm so excited. It is in season seven and it's taken a long time to get here. You know what I mean? So I'm, I feel that way. Like, I feel like I'm going to go there and I'm just like, they're going to, you know, like Dennis, when I got on Rescue Me, he was like, could you take some medication? Like, I was just so, the enthusiasm would not stop. And I couldn't help it. 
you know. So I'm like, I'm sure the heat and, and the bugs in Atlanta will kind of beat me down a little bit, but I just can't wait to get there and like hang out with those people, those amazing actors and those producers. I mean, think about Greg Nicotero. What a great director. And the special effects make, I don't know if you're a fan of that show, but you what they what? do is... Is amazing. I'll, I'll tell you my Walking Dead story. I watched the first two seasons, I believe, mm-hmm. and then I start. I fell behind because it happens. Mm-hmm. And then every one of my friends who I say this that I love them, but you're assholes when they would do the spoiler alert. So I'm oh. just scrolling down. I go, oh, this guy died, and I saw it happen so oh. much. I was like, it's it's not even going back to watch because if I'm watching a show. It's not like I'm watching a movie about an athlete who dies. We know right. he dies. This right. is a show. I don't watch Game of Thrones. If I was a Game of Thrones person, I uh, I would sort of be irritated because people put spoiler alerts. And right. that's why I fell out of it. I do have a friend who actually puts fake people who died on Walking Dead on Facebook. And I think that's one of the funniest things. He'll do a meme and say, goodbye, whatever. And then people get very pissed, like, you're an asshole, you're an asshole. And it's like, he's like, yeah, then he doesn't tell people, but I picked that up. It's funny. But that's what happened with Walking Dead. But I know it's like, it's something that, you know, when you're directing a show like that, they have very rapid fans. I mean, they're rabid. Yeah. They, just, they yeah. love it. And it's like, it must be great because you're what you know you're directing something that has so many great fans but then it also must be you know a little bit scary because if someone doesn't doesn't like the episode you know people just sit there and just start posting and posting that must you know be something where you have to be a little worried about yeah well i haven't really um i have to say i haven't really experienced that too a little bit i mean a little bit there's been little twitter things about different episodes that i've done you know, here and there, but for the most part, it's like 95% positive. And so it's actually cool to connect with people that are fans of stuff and that notice things that you do also. You know what I mean? Right. But yeah, I mean, I definitely, look, I'm not going in to invent the wheel on Walking Dead. It's brilliant. But I am going in there to do a great job and whatever my script is going to be to, like, honor what they're doing and, like, bring my best. I mean, they sort of set the by the bar high as far as I'm concerned. So I'm like really excited. Uh you you I saw on your resume you directed an episode of a of a show I actually enjoyed and I was I was sort of pissed that it got cancelled. It was Low Winter Sun. I dug that show. I thought you were gonna say rake. I don't know why I thought you were gonna say rake. I watched rake me and my girlfriend watched rake occasionally but Low Winter Sun man yeah. I, it was gritty. It was just it had that that feeling of just coolness it was like a sexy show in yeah. an odd way i mean so how did where, where did that shoot that was in detroit that so, was hardcore gritty detroit so what's it like working up in a place like that that is you know a city that is distressed and it's something that you're going in to shoot and i'm sure you know i don't know if they have a lot of production there but is it something that it's a little you feel a little odd going up there because it is such a dark show and the city is actually dark also yeah it was it was actually very um very depressing um but it felt very important at the same time because first of all i'm staying in downtown detroit so i'm right down the street from like the wayne county courthouse which is this gorgeous building and this is about what like three years ago or something yeah this like gorgeous courthouse, this beautiful historic building that's for sale. 
like there's big for sale signs all over it and you're just like you know the, the day I got there I was walking around and I went towards the river like I'm just walking all around and you know what struck me was I could hear the wind and I remember a bike going by me and I could hear the spokes on the bike and I'm like where are you in a city where you can actually hear those things yeah, I can't even like, I can't even hear that in Burbank I, exactly you can't it's just this just really it's just sad man it's just sad and then you start like location scouting and going around and then you realize this show is important and I was disappointed that the show went away the people involved with the show were great but why it felt important was because it's a broken place and people are not going to Detroit and so the the ability to sort of shoot things and show what bring Detroit to people and have them actually see like the reality of the environment I thought was really important for that show to do because you can't describe it to somebody it's like you know if you go to New Orleans after the hurricane and you saw the devastation you can't describe that to people but this is what Detroit looks like but it's it's not a natural disaster it's man against man it's what ha it's what we've done to each other and it's really it's really important that we know that and I know it's been coming back slowly and it's you know it's 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 I'm hopefully on an upswing but it, it just felt important so that was a big piece of being disappointed why the show went away you know what I mean I was like oh man we blew an opportunity to do something really good here right but, so, so now you go from you know you, you it was a depressing area and now you also directed uh what is it um the, the the western Hell on Wheels. Oh yeah, it was great. What is it like? Because you're directing, you're going back in time, and, mm -hmm. and I mean, there's got to be some stuff that you're not used to dealing with because it's a period piece. I mean, what is it like when you do you have to do research before you do a job like that to see what it was like back at that time, or do you just that, sit there and follow the show and go, okay, here's what they that do? That was another show. That was another show that I watched from the pilot, and I was in like obsessed with. Like I loved that show. So getting to do it, I, I, I already knew the show. I knew all the characters. I watched them in their world operate. I knew that, like, I just knew it already. And so I don't think, like, my script had anything particular. Maybe I did a little bit of research about, like, the newspaper and, like, a little bit of details just from my own comfort level to know, you know, what, what, what characters are talking about. And I had Huntington and um, Tin Guinea, who played Huntington, like he was in my episode. He was coming with like the Chinese, and so I did a little bit of research about the history of that, so I would understand it. But um, the great thing about that job was being in Calgary, in Canada, and being in this countryside that was so amazing, and the sky and the weather changed like on the drop of a dime, and you're fighting the elements all the time, and the mud and the it was just, you know, it's it was just a very real, wonderful. I just saw Anson Mount too. Like I, he's so funny. I saw him at the ATX festival, and literally he's standing there talking to the two women that run the festival. And I was like, wanted to thank them. And I was like, sorry, I mean to interrupt. I just want to thank you, da da. da. And they're like, oh, you must know, know, you know, know him. And I look at him, I'm like, no, I'm not sure. And then. I literally have to take his name badge, dude, and turn it around to see his name. You know how embarrassing that is? He's clean shaven. He has a baseball cap on, and he looks nothing. I'm, you know, he looks nothing like 
Colin, like the character he played on Helen Wheels. So I didn't even recognize him. I was so embarrassed. He's such a nice guy. I love that's, him. That's funny. Um, now, you've been directing, as you said, a bunch of episodes for The Good Wife. And uh, mm-hmm. how did, did did that relationship and that work process start because you had worked with Julian Margulies before? Yeah. So, no, how, how does that happen? You get a call and they say, hey, Julian wants you to do this. Or how did you get your first gig with that? And, and how do you continually, you must continually love working on it? Oh my God, I love that woman. So basically, um, you know, I stay in touch with her because I we had a great working thing going on Canterbury's Law, and so she um, she was uh, she we stayed in touch. So we were having coffee one day. I was meeting her somewhere in University Place in downtown Manhattan, and we're having coffee. And she's like, "Oh, I gotta take this call." And she's telling me about this project, this pilot that she wants to do, and. They're like, she's negotiating things with her agent and blah, blah, blah. And then she gets off the phone. She's like, if this show goes, and she told me it was about, and she said, if this show goes, you're going to come on the show. And I was like, great, I'm so there. And so then it's just a question of then telling my agent and then waiting for the pilot, waiting to get picked up, and then, you know, staying on my agent and then saying, hey, I want to get on that show. And then, and but the whole time I'm always talking to Juliana because, you know, she's a friend. At this point, she's a friend. So, you know, she, she pushed for me to get in there and, that was good. Now, I've had guests who have been on that show, and they say the writing is just so phenomenal. Is it great yeah. when you when you get to direct the writing that's so good? It just must – a crew – the class has been around, and they've been together. Is it easier to direct when you go – well, first of all, you know Juliana, and mm-hmm. then everyone knows each other, so they're probably very comfortable with their acting. Do you mm-hmm. find it easier to get a shot in fewer takes when it's a – let's say – a veteran a veteran group of people that have worked in a while for a while in a series you find it easier for directing for them well i think you know juliana like came up also with john from john wells camp as well on er and so she has a certain work ethic and and i think you know i think that the people that are like the number one on the call sheet you know the, the number one is the lead the lead actor on the show that those people generally are very important to set the tone for the rest of the actors and, and how the show is going to flow. And Juliana's a true actor where she her job is to show up and and do her you know make a performance out of those words and and make it happen. And that's what her job is. Her job is not to go in and and criticize and change things and and you know she honors and trusts. And she owns her part like a thousand percent, and so that sets the tone for other actors come in, to come in and honor that script that they're given. The script, first of all, the scripts are great; they're tight, and we're all there to like we're all there to honor the script. That's what we're there for. You know what I mean? So, and we take the script and we interpret it and we do what we do with it. And so she sets that tone, and then you have a lot of professional actors. Uh, you know, Christine Baranski. I mean. Right. You know, that's insane. Alan Cumming, I mean, these are like amazing people. The actors that I got to work with on that show were incredible. Josh Charles, you know, all of them were great. wasn't easy all the time because it's hard. It's hard work. No matter who it is, it's hard work. And, and you know, it, it's it's always going to be hard work. We work, we work long days. We always have too much to shoot in a day. That's what television is about, trying to get too much stuff in a small amount of time. And there's pressure about it. So everyone feels the pressure now and then, and that's normal, and it's okay. 
Now, you've gotten called back for a bunch of episodes for that, and I believe I saw something. I looked at your Facebook page real quick. One of the episodes that you directed may be up for consideration for an Emmy. Mm-hmm. Well, I've done, I've done, um, like I said, 18 episodes. That one is my 17th episode. Every year the Emmys come, and, you know, the CBS, like, sends out their Emmy DVDs, and, you know, they always have episodes on them, right? But they never credited the director I would say almost every single season, at least one of my episodes is is included in the couple or the few. You know, usually there's three to five episodes or something from the season, and usually at least one of my episodes is in there. So this is the first year that it actually, my name is on there, and they're actually acknowledging the director of the episode. So I wanted to just sort of say thank you for that and put that out there, because I'm like, that's cool, because, you know, it's, it's difficult to be the director and sort of feel a little, you know, in television, sometimes there's an idea that it's just the writer's medium, and that's not really true. It's actually a collaborative medium, which is what my podcast is about. You yeah, know, it's, it's collaborative. Everything that you do in film, it takes a group of people to make it happen. It just does. Now, I want to hear a little more about your podcast, because a friend of mine uh, has a directing podcast also. His name's Jordan Brady. He does a lot of commercials. His is called Respect the Process. What is your podcast about, and how did you come up with the idea, and why did you decide to start doing it? I started do. I started. Uh, I decided to start doing it because um, I had gone on some podcasts and I enjoyed it. And really, it really was about talking about the creative process. I mean, I love your. I love. I love the title of the one you just said. Say it again. The title. Respect the process. Respect the process. I love that title. So mine's just called The Director's Chair. Boring, but that's what it's called. Um, And it's just about the creative process as an artist, what you go, what different people go through, you know, how, how, and also the the business side of it, like how hard it is to be, even in a a collaborative relationship, like a marriage, like how do you accomplish that and be far away from home for so long? And then how do you collaborate with other actors, with producers and writers? What works, what doesn't work? And really, it's just, I keep using that word collaboration because I just think what tortures me and what makes my job difficult in, in any medium is ego. And when you collaborate, you have to listen and be open and you're all working together and it becomes about the film or the television show. Like, it has to be about that. It has to be about the work. And if it's not about the work... It's just a drag. It'll happen and, and it'll be good, but you know, there's egos that you've got to dodge here and there, and it's just, it kind of makes the process not so much fun. So, again, I don't think television is a writer's medium or a director's medium. I think it's, it's a medium of collaboration. And so I just wanted to be able to talk about that. And are you enjoying it? I'm loving it. I just love it so much. I love it because, look, I'm talking to you. This is like, this is the shit that I live for. You know, I don't really want to talk about anything else, to be honest with you. It's like, I'm, I don't really care what I eat. I don't really care, whatever. I love swimming, I love water, and I love movies, and I love TV. And that's all I really care about. And the older I get, I'm like, really, life's too short. I just want to do what I love. So you might want to do something. If you pitch it to the TV show, you do your podcast, but it's a TV show from a lake. And call it Lakeside with Rosemary Rodriguez. Oh my God, that's awesome! I grew up on a lake in New Hampshire. So that's your show. You sit there and go, "Here's the deal," and you get it on Bravo, and oh that's what you do. You write that down. 
That that is so cool. <laughs> I love that idea. I really do. But I do love talking to people. And sometimes also what happens is I get to have a lot of guests on that I've worked with. Like I've had Mike Coulter on and Kristen Ritter and and you know, I, I love these people. I loved working with them. But we're really busy, and it's not like we really get to talk. Like, I don't really get to learn about them on, on many levels, so this gives me a chance to sort of get to know them in a different way or be able to talk to them about things that we just didn't have time. That's, that's, that's always great. Now, now, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, what episodes did you direct for the season? Do you know the number? I did episodes 9 and 10, the last two of the season. Um so I was truly honored to be doing It's always an honor to do like the end of a season episode. That's always, it feels like a big responsibility and, and it's an honor to be asked. So I was, I was really excited. And again, you know, I've seen every episode of the show. Of course, I'm a big fan. So, you know, and I gotta say, honestly, not because you know, John, I just, Elaine Hendrick, I mean, the people on that show. Elaine's been on my it, show. She's wonderful. They're, dude, they are all like, I felt, I just felt honored because I felt like they let me become a part of the family. It's not like that everywhere. You don't, you don't get to be welcomed like that. They like right off the bat were welcoming me and I felt like a part of the family right off the bat. You know, I think that might come from too is because I, I did stand up back in the late eighties and early nineties mm-hmm. and we were always a group that just, you know, when you, you always met different people cause you're on a road. So you always let people into your, you know, you were like a gang in comics. And I know with Dennis being a stand-up and then Bob mm-hmm. Kelly being a stand-up, I think it just, it, I think that infects the the whole, all the other cast because everyone's like, okay, man, this is just, this is how it's supposed to be. We're going to be chill. And they're playing a band. So I think that's what makes it uh, pretty cool. And, I mean, but it really is fun. Like, that's not bullshit because like, I'm just putting it out there. It's actually fun. It's crazy and it's hard, but it's fun. Now, how much easier does it make your job when it is fun? And is it also, though, when you become close with the actor, is it harder to direct them in something they may may disagree with you on? No, it's like, you know, right away, like, I really love Lane Hendricks, like, completely. And this is how I direct. It's like, I'll have an idea and then, you know, but they've worked on it, too. So we both have to, like, communicate about what our plans are. So then I, like, had this idea, and she's like, no, I don't think so. I'm like, okay, that's cool. So I'm like, I'm just letting you know, I'm always going to throw my ideas out there. And then, you know, sometimes they have ideas, and it's like, no. But she was like, I just love that woman so much. And John was open. Bobby Kelly was open. Liz Joyce was, like, great. And, De- I mean, and Dennis, of course. And John Corbett, can we just say, like, John Corbett has a crazy sense of humor that I wasn't even expecting and, and, you know, and Dennis is, like, amazing. And Dennis is, like, every time I want to give him a direction or whatever, he's, like, no, 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 And then he does it. Right. <laughs> I, hope he, I hope he doesn't hear this. But he does, and I just love it. But he just, he loves to bark, and he, he makes me laugh, and he's just super talented. And I think everyone sort of riffs off of that, and everyone knows that his, t- you're around, again, it's like Juliana, you're around these people that have so much talent and you get to hang out with them, and everybody knows, everyone on that show, particularly Elaine and John, they're like working actors. Like, they've been around. They're like not brand new. They've been around, and they know that it's it's a special thing when you have a group of people that you like and you get to work with. So I think everyone is very present in that. You know what I mean? Yes, yeah, so and I have to wait uh, two and a half months to watch your episodes because I, I have it. I have it. DVR because I love that show. Now, they're now, good. They're good. I'm telling you, they're I, good. Liz was on just... 
Tuesday, and she said it's a crazy season, not a lot darker than last season, a lot more risque, that she didn't even want to, like, send her parents, like, the episodes because they're pretty out there, which that yeah. makes me excited. So now then you have The Walking Dead, and you you leave tomorrow? I'm going to leave Wednesday. And how long will you be going for? And I'll come back, uh, like, July 26th. The last day of shooting is July 25th. And then I'll come back here a little bit, and then I'll go to New York for Sneaky Pete, a new uh, Brian Cranston show on Amazon. Okay, so now uh, that must be exciting to direct Brian Cranston because he's just crushing it in everything he does. Oh my God, can you believe it? Well, I think he's directing. He's in the show, but he's direct. He's producing it as well, and he's directing the episode before mine. So while I'm in prep, he's going to be directing. So I can definitely like break the ice, go by set, and say hi. And Margot Martindale, Margot Martindale is in it, and she was on The Good Wife, and she's the first one that was like, I'm going to talk to them about, you know, getting you on Sneaky Pete. So I love loyal actors that are really nice, and they put themselves out. And needless to say, I'm on Walking Dead because of Jeffrey Dean Morgan. He's the one that told Scott Gimple, who is the executive producer, writer of the show, um, he, he, like, you know, Jeffrey texts me, hey, are you interested in the show? I'm like, hell yes. Right. <laughs> and the next thing I know, I'm talking to Scott Gimple, and I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. It was awesome. So now, do you have any, is it getting back mind yeah. frame? Or you, oh, so you, okay, cool. Oh, uh, yeah. I have, I've been working on a feature that's coming out. It's, it's going to be opening in September. It's called Silver Skies. And again, it's been about eight years in the making, again, so it takes me so long to get these movies made. But it's so much fun. And you talk about Popeyes. It made me think about Kentucky Fried Chicken because George Hamilton is the lead in my movie and Jack McGee and Barbara Bain and Marriott Hartley and Alex Rocco and Jack Betts. And so George Hamilton just has this new thing where he, I don't know if you've seen it, he's he's a spokesperson for Kentucky Fried Chicken, so he's pay, playing the colonel. I haven't seen so it. He's, He's the new crispy colonel. That's funny. It's hilarious. He's like, who better to be crispy than me? Because, of course, he's so tan and crispy. Right. And he's hilarious. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, my God, George is the best. And so did you enjoy getting back to directing a feature? Oh, it's heaven. Because I wrote and directed and produced it. It was just heaven. It's heaven. And you know what, Steve? This is the deal. I made this movie that I, I, I thought it was doable in my schedule and it was something I could shoot out here and it was a very contained location and and what happened was you know Fred Roos who executive produced the Godfather movies and you name it he's done it all Sofia Coppola's movies and he came on board to help me make this movie and he put this cast together and you know what what I didn't know was that I would end up spending 17 days that we shot it with people who have been in this business for 40 and 50 years and they showed up and they were enthusiastic, they were down to earth, they were, they're artists, like true artists. Like they showed up for me for like basically no money because they love the characters and they love their jobs. And that's just the end of the, 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 the end all be all is that they're artists and they want to act. That's so cool. We know we got to wrap up. Um, yeah. No, no, we got to sit there. Uh, tell how people can find you. Um, on Facebook, um, Rosemary Rodriguez, of course. Um, Silver Skies the movie is on Facebook. And Twitter and Instagram, it's at Rosemary Directs. So and the director's chair on iTunes. So people follow her, Google her, go to her IMDb, yeah. do all that stuff. People follow me on Twitter. It's Cooper Talk, at Cooper Talk. I tweet all the time. Uh, my website is coopertalk.net. I have 
525 episodes up. You can also Excellent. email. Yeah, so you can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. And uh, Instagram and Words with Friends, I'll take your challenge, Cooper Talk One. And don't forget StopTheSalt.com, my website. When I got out of the hospital four years ago, I wrote that low-sodium cookbook. It's 120 easy recipes. No pictures intimidate you. No big, long list of ingredients. You can get it at BarnesandNoble.com or Amazon.com. But if you get it at StopTheSalt.com, not only will I sign it for you, but I will make more money. And that's what it's about, I think, me making money. And it's a great read. So please, go check out Rosemary. Check out her shows. You know, Go back and watch Rescue Me. And yeah, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week.